Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, guys. Dr. Santosh here, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. And let's see. Santosh, what haven't we covered in a while? Oh, dude. Yeah, it's been a little while since we've gone around the world. Around the world? In 80, 80 plagues! <laughs> Do you want to find maybe an audio block for that or something where you're not just doo-doo-dooing with your mouth? <laughs> okay, so that would be a no. <laughs> Look, guys, we don't have a lot of money here. We sure would appreciate if you'd help us have a production budget. <laughs> I'm but just in the meantime. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening, by the way. We love the, you know, you guys are listening. We do. We do. So let's get started. Santosh, what is our plague this week? Oh, yeah. So um, this is a little bit of a callback. We did do African trrypanomyosis, which is African sleeping sickness. With the TTFI. It sounds so cute, and then you're in a coma. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, horrible wasting disease that makes you fall asleep forever and then die. Um, and so, trypanosomes, Josh, are actually, a, you know, they're a worldwide phenomenon. You find them on the African continent in the tsetse flies. And you also find them, they made their way over uh, to the South American continent, and they're slowly making their way to the North American continent, but they cause a completely different disease called Chagas. Ah, yes. So this week's plague will be Chagas, the kiss of death. <laughs> Cure flamenco music. 
there's no flamenco music. You're right. That's that's fake. We need we need some kind of new world music. What the hell? Oh my god! It's in Brazil. God damn you! Actually, actually, it's also in Peru uh, because the earliest do. detection of any kind of T. Cruzi infection was first found in a nine thousand year old. Chinchuro mummy, mm, churros. Uh, chinchuro <laughs> mummy through PCR amplification, and the chinchuros were the very first people identified along South America's Atacama Desert in southern Peru and northern Chile. So a lot of these churro mummies were the earliest known who suffered from Chagas disease. But let's talk a little bit about Brazilian Chagas. We see Chagas in Central America as well, including countries like El Salvador. I think the biggest thing to really talk about in this episode is that thanks to wonderful, wonderful climate change and our inability to stop burning things to survive, um, the vectors for Chagas disease, as well as the disease itself, are making its way north until now we do have almost completely endemic Chagas disease in the southern United States. And it's worrisome enough that our blood supply here in the United States and the blood banks are all being screened for Chagas as well as our other infectious diseases that we screen for before we do transfusions. So before we get started with how Chagas actually does take place in injuring and hurting you and how we treat it and all our fun around the world in 80 plagues data, let's dive a little bit into the history of Chagas, the kiss of death. Okay, would you stop? <laughs> let's start with a young medical student, Carlos Chagas who studied Yay. in Rio de Janeiro under Professor and Dr. Oswaldo Cruz at the Manguinos Institute. 1902, yeah. <laughs> originally he was there to study malaria, which was his thesis project. But around 1904, he graduated and left his private practice to work for the shipping industry. And that's because Sao Paulo needed better access to sea freight as shipping lanes were really being built up around this time. And the nearby port of Santos was perfectly situated to provide a great port. Unfortunately, they were so overrun with malaria that ship captains just straight up refused to dock there. <laughs> so the port owners Aww. hired this malaria expert, Dr. Chagas, to study and reduce disease transmission. And he succeeded. And he did this through a coordinated program of controlling the vectors and treating patients that resembled very similar the modern day outbreak response. This is some a lot of stuff we do even to this day, right? You know that it's coming from the mosquitoes, so you contain the mosquitoes. You try to reduce their breeding grounds as much as you possibly can. And then you you know, you give as much repellents and stuff like this to the victims or the, you know, in this case, the, like the dock workers, right? So that you just stop the transmission at multiple levels, not just targeting one. Now, point. of course, this was in the early 1900s. So some of their approaches to vector control were a lot less, let's breed mosquitoes who can't reproduce or catch them in nets, or other things we've covered on journal clubs, and much more, let's just set fire to the surrounding forest. And this becomes important later on as Chagas disease, although we're not talking about it yet, 
is partially becoming so much more endemic with the loss of woodlands that have served as reservoirs for some of these bugs. They're coming out into society. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, what, what, what are you doing here? Go back into the woods. There's ain't no woods. I'm going to live yeah. with you now. <laughs> well, after taking care of the shipping and the ports, uh, Chagas went back to his clinic and his studies until around 1908, when he was asked to face a similar challenge on behalf of the railroads. Connecting Rio to the heart of the Amazon by rail was another really good business opportunity that was having a lot of problems stymied by infectious disease. This is also how yellow fever was discovered in another one of our 80 plagues. And untold numbers of laborers died in this pursuit succumbing to malaria, yellow fever, and a whole bunch of illnesses. So Chagas moved to the rough and tumble town of La Sants at the end of the rail line in the sweltering <laughs> Brazilian jungle and worked out of a clinic in a railway car, which just sounds so badass. That, that is um, pretty And cool. while he yeah. was working on the railroad all the live long day, he would have a population who kept coming in complaining about irregular heartbeats and difficulty breathing and sudden death. They, they they were young people, Josh. If you can imagine like a young person who looks like they have like congestive heart failure, right? So someone who you'd never expect to have like, the, you know, your older population, right? Who have had like heart attacks and stuff and then their heart doesn't work as well as they should, right? So swollen legs and puffing and, uh, you know, breathing hard and then acting like a horrible heart failure. But yeah, they're like Now, 20. I often describe heart failure to my patients in terms of imagine that your heart has kind of stretched or weakened to the point that it's become leaky. And not all the fluid that's supposed to be in there is staying in the heart. And as it drains out, it ends up getting mixed and sort of collecting in places it shouldn't be, your lungs, your limbs. Now, this is not a perfect analogy because your lungs are not actually filling with blood. People who have swollen legs, it's not blood. It's usually much more likely to be lymph or third space fluid. But in terms of understanding mm -hmm. where the impetus or the drive for this fluid is coming from, a leaky heart is the easiest way to conceive of it. I think it's a good picture. The way that I like to do it is that like, if the heart's the pump that has to move blood around, then think of it as the pump starts to fail and you get backup of fluid into the places where blood needs to flow in and out or fluid needs to get in and out. So the pulmonary circuit, blood has to flow through. It can't just stay there stagnant. If you do, then the fluid from the blood, the lymphatic stuff, plasma, all this kind of stuff, it, it leaks from the capillaries to the space. And the same thing happens if blood backs up into your systemic circulation. And usually we say legs because uh, that's the way the gravity most goes of most the of the time. <laughs> but let's head back to well, the know, <laughs> Brazilian jungle, deep in the slowly being built railroad, where a number of these workers living in you know poverty and kind of having to build dwellings based on what's available, would create mud huts with thatched roofs and, you know, sleep on wooden pallets, just a very rural roughing it sort of experience. And while they would be sleeping late at night, out from the very mud of their own huts and walls would crawl these tiny little bugs known as barbieros or barber bugs. And they were called that because these bugs had a predilection for drawing human blood. They were very large black insects, unheard of along 
the more settled Brazilian coast. But the interior workers, the jungle workers, knew them well, and they said they would come out at night from cracks in the mud walls to feed upon the patient's faces. And sometimes you'd see the swollen bites near eyelids and lips. And for this reason, because you'd have swollen lips and swollen eyelids all over the face, the insects were known not only as barbieros or barber bugs, but also kissing bugs. Yeah, it was just kind of uh, morbid to call something that I mean, know, Dracula bugs just sounds ridiculous. Like well, well I, I don't know that you'd call them Draculas in Brazil. I don't know if you had Dracula in Brazil. Well, they called them barbieros Vampire because they would me. often draw blood. And barbiero is it's the same root as barber surgeon and beard oh mm-hmm. cool yeah the, the so ones that, that when bloodlet. dr shagas heard about cool. this he began you know he would catch these bugs and he would dissect them and then he would inspect their gut uh thinking you know if everybody's getting sick and they're all complaining of these tiny little bugs crawling out of their walls maybe this bug is the vector for a disease and ultimately he discovered a eukaryotic flagellated protozoan very similar to african sleeping sickness that had only Mm. been described six years earlier and he named the bug that he found after his mentor who if you recall was oswaldo cruz so he called it schizotrypanum cruzi which was later Mm -hmm. renamed trypanosoma cruzi and so and by the way oswaldo cruz uh, is just a legend in infectious diseases in South America, and particularly in Brazil, so much so that they named an institute after him in the city of Manaus, uh, the Instituto Oswaldo Cruz, now, that you can go and one see. One of the things that makes Shaga's work really unique in the history of medicine is he was the very first researcher to describe solely and completely a new infectious disease, its pathogen, its vector, its host, its clinical manifestation, its epidemiology, and the significance of his findings. Most of the time, you have a whole bunch of researchers working who they find a disease, and then they work backwards to find a vector. In his case, he actually went the other way. He found the vector and then right. said, well, this is carrying <laughs> a disease. I wonder what it is. <laughs> this was such a huge deal. Like Brazil loved this guy so much. And these contributions were so important that he was kind of made into a little bit of a celebrity at the time to the point that the score of the play Don Quixote was adapted with him as with Carlos Chaga as the protagonist tilting at the windmills of disease with a hypodermic syringe and his likeness even graced the national currency. The 10,000 Crusado note depicted him and the life cycle of the disease he discovered. And it's funny because his mentor, Oswaldo Cruz, who he sent a lot of these bugs to to verify his findings, is only on a note worth 50 Cruzados. (laughs) Most of Chaga's findings, as important as they were at the time, kind of faded into obscurity and went pretty largely ignored until the 1960s. And that's, well, we'll get into why that was later. But Chaga's disease was also known as Chaga Maza disease, because in Argentina, you had another doctor, Salvador Maza, who was studying it. And when Chaga's findings were being questioned, Maza documented widespread cases throughout northern Argentina beginning in 1926 with the discovery of a dog who was infected. So Maza studied also the same insect vectors, hosts, and epidemiology after Chagas had already discovered it. So he was adding to the field of study, but this wasn't taking place at the same time. And he showed that Chagas disease was truly an epidemic 
of a lot of South America, including Argentina. Maza's student, Cecilio Romagna, also strongly contributed to these studies, and he detected a symptom that could easily mm-hmm. lead to a diagnosis, and that's swelling of the eyelids, which would be known as a chagoma or a Romagna sign. And, you know, you can still see it. We'll, we'll put a link in the show notes to, to show you what it looks like. It is actually the rejuvid bug, the kissing bug, you know, hurting you right there on the soft, fleshy part of your eyelid. And then you have an inflammatory reaction right there. Uh, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the pathogenesis. As the well, wait, wait. Before- bugs poop gets into the wound. And then it, inf- it we, inflames we up. We the most it adorably disgusting step the of that process. Side. So as we jump into the pathology, the way this is described in the literature is that <laughs> these bugs, rejuvid bugs, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about them in a moment, Santosh. They crawl out at night. They suck on your face and they get so full, their bodies actually inflate mm-hmm. like little balloons and they become so satisfied from this full meal that they can't control their bowels and they fill up and immediately poop out of sheer (laughs) dietary satisfaction and the poop (laughs) is infected and that's what gets into your cut and causes this disease. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Who hates mosquitoes now, right? <laughs> right? Mosquitoes have a little bit, you know, they have that tube and they they spit out some saliva when they insert their little needle into your skin. But this little guy, this disgusting, horrible little no, thing. eats you. He okay, goes, oh, what a great meal. on oh, you. Oh. <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, and then shits on you. And then, and then you, because the, the stool is actually a bit irritating on the skin and you have a bite, which is, you know, it's also irritating. You scratch your skin. And when you're scratching the skin, you, <laughs> you rub the, the insect poop into the wound and that's how the little microscopic that's right. These one bugs give you a dirty sanchez trypanosome enters your bloodstream now <laughs> now let's make this even more uncomfortable. the yeah. these bugs the triatomines are <laughs> certain of these species and you can look them up just put kissing bugs into Google image search. And you might want to because some of these species are distinctive and even pretty and their folded wings kind of encircle the rest of their carapace or body in a way that almost looks like a little striped skirt. So they're sort of sashaying around and they swell from the size of, I'd say a little bit of a pin, the head of a pin to the size of grapes as they feed. They get really, really big. And you're right. A, not all rejuvids or not all kissing bugs, hashtag not all kissing bugs, <laughs> transmit chagas. <laughs> but they are gorgeous. And especially some of the non-transmitters are really, really beautiful little animals. Now, as you might imagine, this is a gross and not particularly efficient mode of transmission, but it's still good enough to have kept Chagas going since pre-Columbian time with those chinchoro mummies. Yeah. <laughs> Remember... In evolutionary biology, it's not about what's the coolest or what's the quickest or everything like that. It's just what works given the circumstances 
that an organism has. This organism is able to propagate in this fashion. So let's briefly talk about the life cycle of the parasite, since that's what's pictured on the 10,000 Crusoe note with Carlo Chagas. And I'm really hoping that doesn't show somebody sleeping, then a bug blowing up to a grape, then that grape pooping into somebody's eyeball. So uh, let's talk about the actual parasitic life cycle, and then we'll talk about the disease. <laughs> yeah, and what you're going to have is you're going to have an insect life cycle and a human life. We can start off with the kissing bug uh, taking the blood meal and then shitting on you. <laughs> and you scratch, scratch, scratch. And we have something called a metacyclic trapomastigote or trypanomastigote. And the metacyclic uh, form uh, will penetrate various cells at the wound site, then they'll go into uh, into tissues in order to propagate. And Josh, the scariest places they go, ultimately, is into heart muscle and into the muscle that lines your intestines. So that's called the smooth muscle. That's the muscle that gives you the contractions that moves your yummy, yummy food down your digestive tract so you can eventually poo it out. Yes. You get... Uh, a mastigotes that set up uh, into the infected tissues, and then you get intracellular amastigotes that transform back to tripomastigotes and burst out of the cell. So this is kind of acute disease, and now you have the tripomastigotes swimming around in your bloodstream, and the next kissing bug comes around. The kissing bug sucks up the uh, the uh, a mastigote, the little swimming around uh, trypanosoma, and now it actually enters a different life cycle. Um, so just to briefly interrupt, all the way to so the it's back gotten into your blood, and then the now the bug, um, as part of multi- its blood meal, sucks it up yeah, yeah. from your blood, and now we're right. talking about the disease back in the bug. It's back in the bug, exactly. So the bug is given it to you. The parasites have disseminated. Some of them have hidden themselves in muscle, heart muscle and intestinal smooth muscle. A few other parasites have burst back out and gotten into your bloodstream. Usually you're asymptomatic by this point. You don't have any symptoms. Okay. And then another regivid bug comes along and sucks your blood. And it takes those things up. And that little trypanosome makes its way through the gut of the regivid bug and goes through several different life stages. Mm-hmm. And by the time it gets to, it gets to the hind gut of the regivid bug, just hanging out, just in the little, little insect rectum, <laughs> just waiting to be pooped out. And by the time it's there, it is a, uh, metacyclic Tripomastigote, and it's ready to enter the human bloodstream again with the next pooping (laughs) on the skin. There it is. And 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 by the way, you know, you had mentioned before that we had seen Chagas disease in a dog, right? So this is what's called a zoonotic disease. Needs the insect in order to move from animal to animal, but this thing can infect uh, rodents. It can infect dogs. It can infect raccoons. So imagine and dangerously for species. Texas so armadillos Ar- and armadillos. Oh, the poor armadillos! And so the problem that we have here is even if you you know you try to get rid of it in humans as much as possible, you're still going to have animal reservoirs. So uh, you have to be very careful to eliminate as many reservoirs as you can, as well as the 
bugs themselves if you're going to kind of win this battle. It's got a number of summer houses in dogs, cattle, armadillos that it can hang out in until uh, you least suspect it. And then it can sneak out of those mud walls and bite your face, giving you the kiss of death. So let's talk about what the disease looks like. In humans, this disease presents itself in two stages. There's the acute stage, which occurs about six to ten days after the initial infection and lasts anywhere from four to eight weeks Most of the time, this acute phase is passing largely unnoticed as the clinical symptoms are are nonspecific. You can have fever. You can have swelling of nodes in your neck or along your arms. Uh, The only really specific sign would be inflammatory edema or a fluid collection at the site of infection. And if that happens to be around the swelling around the eyeball, we call that Romagna's sign. Not everybody who gets initially infected will really show any signs at all, right? So there are quite a few people um, who'll get infected with Chagas who'll have like kind of minor signs and symptoms and just kind of ignore it and move about their life. You know, you know you're sick. Nobody doubts that, but nobody's going to take one look at these people and immediately think Chagas. However, if you suspect it, During the acute phase, these circulating trypanosomes can easily be found in the blood of patients. Right. And so this is what you have to do. You know, a lot like malaria, you have to do one of those blood smears, right? So you take out the blood and you you smear it thinly on a uh, slide. Um, And you may have to do repeated blood smears in order to find it, but you can detect them. These are nice, big, fat eukaryotes you know they're not teeny tiny bacteria so if you stain the blood a little bit and uh you, now, you kind of patiently look through there with the parasites and antibodies playing a you know body-wide game of hide and seek the parasite and the host reach an immunological balance and that's where you have the bugs sneaking into the heart muscle or the smooth wall of the gut and the disease then enters the chronic phase And then for the next 20 or 30 years, there's really no symptoms at all. And a lot of people who have had this infection will then remain in what's called a latent stage or a chronic stage for the rest of their lives without developing any symptoms. Uh, And however, for about 15 to 30 percent of infected people, there's tiny little parasites, as we said, those triple mastigotes busily just liquefying away your internal organs. (laughs) And, you know, this isn't a necrosis uh, that we see in something like, you know, necrotizing fasciitis where the the tissue is actually literally disintegrating. Um, What the trypomasticotes, what the little trypanosomes are feeding on actually breaks down very specifically muscle. And so the muscle fibers that are either in the smooth muscle lining your intestines or your myocardium, which is your heart muscle, start to break down and get replaced with fibrosis. And this is when the heart, if that's the one infected, becomes floppy and weak, uh, unable to conduct the electrical pathway like it should. So you get things like arrhythmias and becomes ineffective at pumping. So you get heart failure. And we don't really understand why in some people it's 10 years, why in some people it's 25. It doesn't really seem to have to do with the actual disease burden. It's not 
terribly well understood. I don't know. Some of these bugs are just more effective than others. Typical manifestations of this disease, as Santosh said, affect the muscles. So you get dilation of the heart or it grows big and weak and floppy. Uh, which is chronic chagasic cardiomyopathy. And the same thing happens with the digestive tract where you get mega esophagus and mega colon. And believe me, the last thing you want in your body is mega <laughs> It's not as nearly as cool as it sounds. So uh, mega esophagus or mega colon looks like it because the muscles that line our esophagus, our intestinal wall, our colon, actually work to hold the, you know, the diameter of our esophagus and our colon in kind of a a tone. It has a muscular tone. That muscular tone keeps the internal diameter of those structures a certain size. You know, and not nobody wants a floppy and colon if you or lose a blown the muscular up tone, They become floppy and just like, you know, kind of a, a blown up balloon type of thing. So what happens now is if you have esophagus or, oh, or I wish you I know, had mega esophagus or mega colon. Actually, you like GI way more than I do. Tell them, tell them what the symptoms are. Oh, okay. Well, how do you know if you have a megacolon? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> what you will see is frequent, frequent diarrhea, because what happens is the poop sort of all collects <laughs> in the colon as it becomes more and more distensible, but you don't have the strength to kind of contract and push it out. So you get megacolon, you also get ulceration and inflammation of that of that colon because it's been stretched so thin and elastic. So you get bloody diarrhea and swelling in your belly. And then because of this distension, it actually can lead to signs of shock, like a weak pulse or clammy skin and things like that. Mega esophagus is going to be somewhat similar uh, in the sense you have this dilation of things. So the symptoms of mega esophagus, and this is actually something that really is much more dangerous for dogs. As in, in humans, it's very inconvenient and debilitating, but it's not usually lethal. Right. Because we can we can always put in a gastrostomy tube, right? And so you feed straight into your stomach. But symptoms of a mega esophagus in animals or people include frequent regurgitation, a loss of appetite, sudden weight loss because food just isn't getting its way past the esophagus into the stomach, exaggerated or frequent swallowing and sour or foul smelling breath. Right. Cause everything just kind of sits and ferments instead of moving down into your tummy and, you know, kind of moving on. So and as I said, we don't really know a lot about it, but we have identified six discrete typing units, DTUs of T. cruzi that have geographical distributions and extensive genetic diversity. So you may find in Brazil, it's much more likely that somebody infected with Chagas there is going to end up with either a mega esophagus or an arrhythmia. Whereas if you move your way down to Peru, it's much more likely to see, you know, some heart failure and mega colon. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that, yeah, it's it's really interesting that, you know, these are all the same genus and species of trypanosome, but small genetic differences between the parasites means that they affect different tissues. Somewhere between six and seven million people in Latin America are currently infected. And if you're infected, but you don't have any symptoms, you're likely only to find out after donating blood. 
So, hey, everybody, this might be a good time to go help out your community and donate blood. Uh, well, no, no, there's a problem with <laughs> there's a problem with that because they can't they can't take your donation, <laughs> unfortunately. No, but they can but they can tell you. So either you've donated blood and helped somebody or they test your blood and like, uh, so you can't donate because and then you go hmm and that's kind of nice right because we actually do have therapies now to treat chagas which we'll talk about a little bit later but yeah it's it's kind of neat when we started screening our blood supply here in the united states josh believe it or not we found you know close to you know a few thousand patients uh, who were donating here where, you know, we were able to screen them and before they developed any disease, actually get them treated. In fact, Santosh, in 1953, it was first discovered that the dye crystal violet or gentian violet kills the parasite or kills T. cruzi in blood preservations. And since then, this dye has been widely employed in blood banks in all endemic areas, and that eliminates the parasite from blood used for transfusion. So you can actually donate if you have the infection. Oh, neat. I didn't realize that. So yeah, they, they can do gentian violet. So gentian violet is actually widely antiparasitic. It, it kills quite a few different types of uh, parasitic cells. So I, I like it that it works on trypanosomes. Yeah, so it actually lets you clean the blood. So again, this is a great call to just, if you're not sure or you're worried, go ahead, donate blood. It is. And, and, and you know, the, the neat thing is that if, if you find out, you get treatment, and that's it. You know, your risk of your lifetime risk for heart disease, for megacolon, for megaesophagus goes down to zero, which is awesome. Now, I want you to keep in mind, we're going to touch on those dates again. 1904 to 1908 is really when Chagas disease was first described, discovered, codified, and then ignored until the 60s because we had nothing that we could do about it, even if they believed Chagas, which... People, they believe, some people believed him, and then they're just like, oh, but this is a disease of Latin America, so who cares? Yeah, that is, we, we hear that a lot, unfortunately. Luckily, we don't have those kinds of problems today. <laughs> I'm so glad to be living. Okay, go, can we move on before I get sad? So in the 60s, when the more developed world started taking this a little more seriously, we finally began to research and introduce a treatment for Chagas. And that was first seen in 1966 when doctors Hoffman and LaRoche introduced benzonidazole for the treatment of Chagas. And then about three to four years later, the Bayer company, known for aspirin, uh, made mm -hmm. nefertamox commercially available as an anti-Chagas medicine. So what can you tell us about those two drugs? The truth of the matter is, uh, you know, here we are in the United States. Um, I have not have had a cause yet to use nefertamox or benzonidazole. I have a cool story. Uh, you know, these are both antiparasitics. I have a really cool story that nefertamox was actually given to a little girl who had a cancer called neuroblastoma in Boston um, because she had Chagas at the same time. And interestingly, Josh, her neuroblastoma actually got better. 
And so nifertamox is not only a very, very valuable antiparasitic, um, but it's actually quite, you know, it has potential as an anti-cancer drug as well. And that makes a lot of sense because uh, nifertamox poisons, you know, the parasites. Parasites are eukaryotic cells, a lot like our cells. So, you know, these are somewhat toxic medications, but you can use that you know, yeah, so I'm going to correct that headline. Um, they are poisonous to yeah. both the disease and to you. They do have some serious undesirable effects, uh, including yeah. anorexia and weight loss, which can also be seen with Chagas. Nausea and vomiting can mm-hmm. also be seen with Chagas. Insomnia, <laughs> psychiatric depression, in rare cases, convulsions, in more frequent cases, vertigo, headache, sleepiness, muscle and joint pain and forgetfulness not fun drugs to need well nifertamox specifically is not not at all a fun drug and but uh benzinidazole now josh is available here in the united states and i think that one is a, a quite a bit better uh, yeah in fact benzinidazole is even approved by the fda for use in children two to 12 years of age uh, Nefertamox is not currently approved in this country, but is available under investigation protocols from the CDC. And it's recommended usually for adults up to 50 years old with chronic infection who do not already have advanced cardiomyopathy. If they're older than 50, they say, mm, you know, these drugs have a lot of bad side effects and largely any damage that's been done is there's probably no coming back from it. So you may not want to ingest this kind of toxin to treat something that can't be cured by that point. Yeah. And and that's kind of the tough thing, right? So we in the parasite world really, really, really go for treatment as prevention rather than like treatment as cure later on in the disease course, because, you know, you can destroy the parasites all you want, but if the heart muscles destroyed, the heart muscles destroyed. Yeah. Now, both of these drugs really are designed more for the acute phase. And uh, that's that's a real problem yes. because, as we mentioned, the acute phase is super nonspecific. And most of the time, people don't realize they're in it. <laughs> well, but, but we do treat we in endemic areas. This will be given for presumed yeah. infection. And yeah, again, yeah. as we said, you can notice it just from easily in blood smears. So there, they have a high suspicion. If you come in and you're and you've been out in sort of these rural areas of anywhere in South America, Uh, you are very likely to undergo a blood test and blood smear that can tell right then and there, or at least with a couple follow-up tests, whether Mm -hmm. or not you have this disease. And now we do have antibody testing available. Uh, It's not very good, unfortunately. Um, We we have a fair share of false positives. and we have to uh, kind of run statistical testing on it and modeling to make sure that we understand what the cutoffs for what positive and negative are here, you know, in the United States, which is right now a non-endemic area, but that's probably going to change. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Texas actually change. is now considered an endemic area. Right, exactly. So you can use this what's called serologic testing, um, which is antibody testing in order to uh, suss this out. There may be times where if you 
find out that, uh, you know, just from a clinical history that you have enough risk and, you know, the antibody test comes back, you know, oh, I'm asymptomatic and you're in this latent phase where you don't have a lot of trypanosome, so you can't find it in the bloodstream. Um, it may be, you know, important to just elect to treat. How concerned should you be as a traveler? Well, the answer is concerned, but not freaked out because some of the factors that increase your risk of getting Chagas would be living in impoverished rural areas of Central America, South America, Mexico, living in a residence. And, you know, when we say living in a residence that has these bugs, most of the tourist hotels, tourists are staying in well-constructed buildings. These bugs usually come yeah. in mud or <laughs> adobe huts or thatch. So if you avoid sleeping in a mud thatch or adobe yeah. house, you are much less likely to put yourself at risk. And even if you do, you can use insecticide-soaked netting over your bed while sleeping in these houses and use insecticides mm -hmm. or insect repellent on exposed skin. If worse comes to worse, you know, you, if you have any symptoms, you know, you can get checked out. And, uh, you know, the, the nice thing is the treatment for acute Chagas is really, really effective. Uh, and you just yeah. wipe out the parasites. So that is it for, oh, oh, I think I found it again. That is it for this week's Around <laughs> the World in 80 Plagues. <laughs> I like all my dudes. <laughs> I really like it too. Josh, I should let everybody know that benzonidazole is available here in the United States. It's not just limited to acute course. If you've traveled, if for any reason you believe that you may be infected, you can get tested by a good infectious disease doctor or, you know, have your uh, doctor send testing to the CDC. And benzonidazole is available in a tablet form so that you can take it if you have acute disease or if you have latent disease. So hopefully That's it for disease. this Around the World in 80 Plagues, but we will throw in a very brief just the tip for the Atacama Desert. Oh, yay. Oh, the... <laughs> Do you want to well, get shocked? <laughs> so the Atacama Desert actually no, no, has no. a lot of great things to see. And one of the ones that's super cool is the Salt Flats and the Chaca Lagoon. So Chile, Chile is home to the world's second largest salt flats. Uh -huh. And it's just... I can't even begin to describe. It's this alien landscape. Oh, it's so, you're right. That's so pretty. I got I got to take it it's back. It's an you're right. this alien is, this landscape beautiful, just beautiful covered place. in like this white, almost featureless plain dotted with tiny little lagoons. And the biggest one of them is the Cha Chasha, Chaka. I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. The Chasha Lagoon. And it's in the heart of the salt flats where you can see pink flamingos in their natural habitat. And it's the most bizarre juxtaposition of seeing like this featureless, completely bare, almost dead looking landscape with a whole bunch of 
pink or white birds just standing in the middle of a little puddle having what looks like the time of their lives in the middle of a conference. It's cool. So uh, there's a pool that's a lot like the Dead Sea. It's super, super salty. So you can, you know, just kind of basically like lay on top of it because it's uh, it's so dense. Um, so that's Laguna Piedra in the, the salt lake, uh, frolic along in the salt flats. Um, you should definitely catch if you go there, like the sunrises and the sunsets, because it's absolutely. And if uh, you're a stargazer, oh my goodness, change. it's going to be real uh, hard to find anywhere better oh, to just stare up at the sky. It is. You don't have any artificial lights at all. Um, and so you can just see, you know, stars forever. You know, Josh, I think the only sky that I've seen, and I've, I've only seen the Atacama Desert sky, you know, through pictures and Google and stuff. But I, I think the only thing I can compare it to is when I got to go up to the Himalayas. It was so dark at nighttime that every single star just, you know, the, the moon and the stars lit up the sky as yeah, if it's, it was It's absolutely time. gorgeous, but... The caveat is the nearest tourist town is San Pedro de Atacama, which all of the buildings are built from adobe and mud brick. So take the precautions yeah. <laughs> we suggested and <laughs> you should true. be fine. I think that's absolutely right. If you wear your DEET, if you ask for an insect net that they soak in pyrethrin, um, or pyrethrin, sorry, or, or one of the other, you know, really strong insecticides and you sleep under that net uh, at nighttime because these guys really only come out at night. And you won't have you know, to worry about receiving you're, the you're keys be fine. of death. That's <laughs> it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially so we can afford sound effects, you can find links to do that in the show notes along with the sources we used in researching this week. The show is produced by me with a lot of help. From all my co-hosts, our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.